Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Bonjour, Ann Friedman. Hola. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need you to give me one more sentence than hola. Also, I love that I say this like uh, my, my accent is this. Um, give me one more sentence than that. One more sentence than hola? Wait, what? Yes. I, don't... I, I want you to go further in your greeting to me. Como estas? Thank you. <laughs> wow. And now you are the one trolling me with a thank you response. <laughs> yes. Gracias. Um, uh, you know, I just I just want to push the like, you know, the boundaries of, uh, you know, of us using our, our foreign languages on this podcast. Bienvenidos. I call your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for speaking Spanish with me because we just missed Women in Translation Month. I mean, this is so classic us where we're like, what a great idea. We are so excited to talk about literary translations of women's work, translation done by women. You know, we are big book nerds. And then lo and behold, the whole month goes by and we've missed the what is actually women in translation month. But you know what? Still a worthy topic. And we are still going to talk about it. Here's my problem with like, you know, all these like XYZ months. Uh, <laughs> if we gave people the credit that they deserved, we would not be having to like silo people, like celebrating people into like specific moments of the year. So, I mean, not to rant out, but uh, it makes me annoyed that we have like months for things that are cool and important. I hear you. I mean, so in this particular case, um, it is not something that is like has long been on the Hallmark catalog. Um, Women in Translation <laughs> Month. No, I mean, it was started as like an activist thing in 2014. A book blogger named Maytel Radzinski was like, listen, a tiny fraction of the U.S. book market, like we're talking less than 3%, is literary translation. And of that tiny slice, an even smaller percentage of those translated works are the work of women writers in translation. So like less than 30% of 3%. I don't know the full math on the fractional number of translated works by women. But like, frankly, if you are buying books in the United States um, and you are buying books in English and reading books in English, you are missing like literally everything written by women in any other language. That's kind of what that number means. And I think that like, that's why it's like, oh, here is a month to be like, you know, if you are a huge nerd who pays attention to such things like yours truly, it's maybe a good month to read a work in translation, either a work by a woman or a work translated by a woman. <sighs> I'm processing all of that information. Well, okay. And so, and, and actually more specifically, before I even knew it was Women in Translation Month, I was... Honestly, having an intellectual meltdown in the best way possible because I picked up this translation of The Odyssey by Emily Wilson. I mean, by Homer, but translated by Emily Wilson. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's okay to say that this version is by Emily Wilson. <laughs> totally. Okay. Inspired by Homer, um, written yeah. by Emily Wilson. Homer could never, Anne. He could never. Homer wishes, right? Um Anyway, and I, it has been blowing my mind on so many levels. It is like all I want to talk to people about. And uh, I received it as a gift. I've recently given it as a gift, which to me, I'm like, that's how you know, like, this is important to me. And when I mentioned it to you, you were like, oh my God, how did we not talk about this a year ago when I was obsessed with it? 
So can we just geek out about this translation of the Odyssey for a minute? Oh, man. The number of times that I had to read the Odyssey in, like, French school or have to write about it or whatever. And, like, I get it. Hero's journey. Um, You know what I mean? But a thing that I think, like... motion. (laughs) Right. Like, wah-wah, the canon. Yeah. But, you know, also, I'm like, if your, like, journal can survive, like, millennia, I guess we got to give it some respect. You know what I'm saying? So (laughs) I'm hoping someone finds all my text messages one day and it's, like, the odyssey of, like, you know, in, like, 17,000, like, whatever. But anyway... It also just represents a lot of other firsts, right? It's like, okay, it's like first woman translator of the Odyssey. That is a huge, that's a huge deal. And it's also something that I don't think until I read it, I had like fully actually metabolized, you know? It's just the realization of like, oh yeah, I live in a, I live in a world that is shaped by men, including, uh, including the translated works that I read. That was like an actual, like, like I had not like fully thought that through. And so I think that like waiting for that to sink in was like, that seems like pretty monumental to me. It's also like the first English translation that has the exact same number of lines as the original. It's the first that's in regular meter. It's radical. It is. And it's radical from the opening line. So it's just this thing that you, you know, it just, I'm like, oh, is this what happens when people who don't usually have access to like a specific kind of area get access, like shit gets blown up? I love this, like this energy all the time. I also love that like the first maybe quarter of this book is an introduction and a translator's note um, that in which she describes her process and about, and essentially like why this work in translation is really different than other translations of the Odyssey, why she Mm. felt it was necessary. I mean, it really is like the kind of conversation that I, I don't really remember having in college and high school classrooms, but like seems like the modern, like the kind of adult version of that conversation that I crave, which is to say she really kind of breaks down why is this work important in history, but also what has been missed because it is venerated as important. And so like your point about like, oh, wow, like the layers of it being filtered through men's experiences. For example, she's like, listen, the oldest English translations of the Odyssey are no closer to ancient Greek than our modern English is, right? Like it really is not, Mm. those were fully like, you know, one guy's interpretation brought into like what was then modern parlance to tell the story. And subsequent translations have really tried to hew to earlier English translations. And her radical thing is like, guess what? I'm just going to hew to the ancient Greek and the modern. I'm going to say, truly translating the story, not only into English, but for this moment, requires me to not actually take into consideration other works by men, right? Like, it's just me and Homer. <laughs> it's just like uh. me in the modern, like, English language. And she does preserve certain things, like, as you said, the number of lines. But I love this idea of her just being like, you know what? Like, there is a whole construct around the way this work is translated. And we don't really need that. That's not serving the reader. And I'll give you an example. She mentions that a lot of the characters in other translations are described in very repetitive ways. So it's like, it's always wise Athena or something like that, um, which was designed in an oral tradition to allow listeners to really like, oh, okay, I'm going to sit up and take notice. This is Athena we're talking about here, the wise one. Whereas when you're reading it in print, people who are reading this translation of the Odyssey are literate, are probably like 
very comfortable consuming the written word and they don't need repetitive descriptors to, to recognize Athena and who she is. And therefore she can be a little bit more free. She can use other descriptions of, of who Athena is. Like she's really not only thinking about how this work will, will be received um, in the modern context, but she's like, you know what, I'm taking an oral tradition and translating it to a written tradition. So other types of translation. And that is where like my mind fireworks are just going, right? I was like loving it. <laughs> Man, I thank you for nerding out with me on this. So <laughs> the real tagline of this podcast, thank you for nerding out with me on this. <laughs> I know. Well, so here's the thing, like the something that I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier about how part of a decision that she makes is that she contextualizes the Odyssey in modern times, right? And so, and basically like within the current political climate that we're in. Mm. And so that is like a very deliberate choice, right? Like she, she makes a choice to really like embrace this like modern tradition of like white man anti-hero, this, you know, like your Walter White's or whatever. And there's a part of that that is like, okay, great. Like some would say that it's kind of an activist stance, I don't agree. I think that that is an intellectual stance. But the thing that I like love about it is that it doesn't mean because like she has these politics or she prioritizes that, that she's also not being accurate. Of course. And it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot. She really like points out a lot of the like, like the misogyny in the text, right? And the misogyny in like previous translations. And so there's this moment where basically like a Telemachus murders all of the, you know, he murders all of the slaves who like slept with Penelope's suitors. And every other translation of, you know, the, of the young women has always been like super, it had always been like misogynist slurs. It was like, they're whores, they're creatures, you know, like slutty, all of this stuff. And, and everybody's always been very agreed that that was just like, it's like, well, you know, like, uh, like the Homer time that was like very sexist. Like, this is what's happening. Stop and, Homer time. <laughs> you know, like Homer, <laughs> Homer time. And, uh, and she's just like, no, slut shaming is, uh, she's like, slut shaming is something that like newer people have brought to this text. And so to me, I'm like, wow, this, I'm like, I'm like, are you saying that there's anachronistic misogyny in <laughs> in like in translating this work and so it's like i just keep being stuck on like the you know it's like we talk a lot about like diversity and inclusion like there's supposed to be some sort of like moral imperative and sure like that's fine like uh the world should be reflective of how people are or whatever but i'm also like it makes creative sense and it makes business sense like in this case i was like wow it took a woman to like fix like a thing that was not true well that is a hundred percent true and i think one reason why i am so engaged in the conversation around this book in particular is because it is baked into all kinds of culture other culture we consume because the story is perceived as so canonical and so foundational and um i had actually forgotten when i picked up this book recently that um i had really come into contact with her work as a critical translator last year when um she was tweeting about the sirens and how they appear in this book which is you know maybe you picture them as like three sexy mermaids on a rock tempting sailors like i think that's kind of like how i would summarize who are yeah, the sirens that's, that's, right it's like sexy sexy babes sexy babes on rocks and this crops up like in all kinds of retellings of the odyssey um like these characters are there again and again but here is what she tweeted she says but the homeric sirens passage in book 12 is surprising in at least two ways one is how short it is. 
This episode has become a much bigger part of the Odyssey and modern retellings than it is in the Homeric poem, which interesting, right? Like you have taken a thing that is like gazing at sexy, seductive women and made it a bigger part of this story than it truly is. So there's that, that secondly, she tweets, the sirens in Homer aren't sexy. For example, we learn nothing about their hair in contrast to other divine temptresses. The seduction they offer is cognitive. They claim to know everything about the war in Troy and everything on earth. They tell the names of pain. And so really like they are seductive to our hero who wants to understand the world, which like who doesn't, right? But they are not seductive in the like, these are some sexy babes sense, right? And even that is like one of those things where if you ever needed a case for why do we need a diversity of people translating stories that have wormed their way into every aspect of, you know, the Western literary canon, like there you go. Like that is like the perfect anecdote to summarize the reality check. And also it's so much more interesting to be seduced by knowledge. Like, don't you think? I, I mean, Anne, you are like, like you are melting my panties off. Thank you. Um, wow. Excuse me. Um, you know, but it's also like this kind of thing where it's so easy to frame this conversation around like, oh yeah, this is what like a female perspective brings to translation. And uh, I love your bro and, voice. Would you say something? Would just please say that again in your bro voice. Uh, <laughs> um, you you know what I'm talking about. I do. And but it's this thing where I was like, is anybody running around like asking male translators how their male perspective? has really hampered their work yes (laughs) this is it's just like what what is happening and i this is why i love learning this is why i love learning we like we are out i love reading books and i love learning you know like something that you think that you are familiar with and something that is so you would not catch me just like reading uh reading the odyssey for no reason at you know at my big age and it turns out that there's still something to learn here and I don't know. I'm just like very grateful for Emily Wilson and for all of the women who do this like very intense and very vital kind of work because wow, like if Homer's not being translated right, like what else are we missing out on? Absolutely. (sighs) This is altering a lot about what I think about a lot of things. Um, (laughs) Let's take a break. You know, I I go back to this idea of Women in Translation Month, right? Because on one level, like, I I think I've thought a lot about how in works that are well regarded, like works that are seen as foundational, like the Odyssey, I think about who's missing from that, right? Like which authors, which creators are missing from what is perceived as canonical. I think about that a lot. I think a lot less about interpretation of that work and also how that is a loss that we experience as like people who are interested in the world when when only a certain demographic is um 
is critically interpreting that as well. And I think like that layer is, is what I'm really, um, what I'm really getting out of this translation. I mean, I love, um, I, this is just like full on nerd raving now, but like, I love work that like makes me consider the kind of everyday things I'm consuming, even when it's like not the work itself. So when I, when I, when the Odyssey is closed and sitting by my bedside table, I am still thinking about now because it's forefront of my mind, how, how things around me are translated, right? Like who, mm. who is picking this item and packaging it for Trader Joe's and like what was its original like form or like, mm. you know, just like li- every mundane choice about like who gets to be a translator of, of culture and of art in the deepest sense, the broadest sense. Right. I mean, it is such a gift that we have as humans that there are so many ways to understand each other and to have access to each other's like ideas and words and brains and translators are a vital part of that and it's just so um i don't know it's just it's just been making me think it's making me think a lot about um you know who are the like who are the middlemen in the transaction of like understanding other human beings and it, and it also just like makes me think a lot for myself about, um, you know, like how my thoughts are organized in French versus how they're organized mm. in English. And even in the process of writing our book, like what kind of writer I am in English, because I think that that's the thing that I've been trying to understand about myself for a long time. And it is now like coming into focus for me a little bit. And language is so mysterious and it's so, 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 so important. The work of translation, it's not just like the work of translation is not transcription, you know? And right. so I think that a lot of people like also just don't understand that. Like they're not, um, translator works are not like line by line <laughs> translations or just, you know, there's like, okay, I'm going to faithfully hew to the, the words that are here. It's like you are, you are translating a mood, you are translating emotions, you are, you are translating a culture. And all of that is, um, I'm like, that's art. Mm-hmm. that is that is art and i um you know i'm like i'm i am fluent in languages that i do not have the skill to translate works in that is like that is a true that is a true labor of uh you know of like of intellect and art so i i'm very i admire that a lot a hundred percent i love what you said about how like there's never a one-to-one because of the mysteries of language right or like the the There is no such thing as a translated work that is not an interpretation. Right. And it's a and it's a very intimate process. I'm thinking um, about I will link to this in the show notes, this piece that Teju Cole wrote in the New York Review of Books that is essentially about like translation. And it just it's a really lovely sentiment because he talks about like his books being translated into other languages and how, you know, I'm. I can't even imagine like the relationship that you have to have with someone who literally will take your words and convey them in another language. And also just like he contextualizes so much into like, um, you know, into the work of other literary translations, but it was just like a really lovely piece mm-hmm. that I will, um, I will link to in the show notes. I, I don't know. And this is like bringing up a lot of feelings for me. I love it. A, a lot of like a lot of feelings as a consumer of art, a lot of multilingual feelings, like a lot of feelings of like what, what do I think I know that I don't know? <laughs> Whoa. Yes. <You> know? <laughs> and, and I feel like that, that's like actually the, I don't know. So much of adult life has been this for me. It's like every day I realize that a thing that I was told to believe is actually not how it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a little bit rattling. 
Completely. I mean, like in some ways, I think that the process of growing up is continually recognizing how little the things you think you know are are true in any objective sense. Huh, always be learning. Always be learning. <laughs> uh, um, I'm trying to find this quote. Uh, there was it was it was a book review. I think it was in the New York Times book review several months ago and it was a line embedded in a review of something it wasn't like you know the the subject of an essay but i'm paraphrasing the quote which goes something like all writing is work in translation like you are taking things that are not experienced verbally and certainly not in the written word and like experiences in the world and emotions and like dynamics and putting putting a name to them and that process is extremely imprecise right like that is a translation as well and that's something i thought about that quote which i'm so sorry to say that i do not have at hand in order to credit the writer but i i I thought about that quote a lot like as we go through our own book writing process and there have been so many times when we're like how do we even begin to capture this thing that like you know has happened between us or that like one or both of us have felt that there is just not a commonly accepted language for oh oh my gosh yeah that's so that's so real it's like act, like speaking of that like uh that teju cole piece that i was i like i was telling you about one of the things that like teju cole talks about uh like with his translator i'm just gonna go ahead and read it to you because i feel like it, it is still blowing my mind so he's basically talking about the translator who has translated already four of his books into italian right mm-hmm. and so he says Recently, she was translating an essay of mine on the blackness of the panther, which ranged on various matters from race, the color black, and colonialism to panthers, the history of zoos, and uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. It wasn't an easy text to translate. In particular, the word blackness in my title was a challenge. To translate that word, she had considered, uh, I'm not going to say these words in Italian because I don't know um, how to say them, um, both of which suggested negritude but neither quite evoked the layered effect that blackness had in my original essay she Mm. needed a word that was about race but also about the color black the word that she was looking for couldn't be the word for darkness in italian which went too far for in the optical direction emitting racial connotations so she invented a word thus the title and then they like then the title of the essay like totally changed and i was like this is this is hard work people yeah i mean I, that, you know, it's like the, the language of like Ferrante and Dante. You got to like innovate still. Ferrante and Dante. <laughs> Listen, I am. Um, that's like a, from the Teju Cole piece. So I love I'm it. That. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And it reminds me of actually um, a, another thing from this uh, Emily Wilson intro to the Odyssey that I've been thinking about in terms of how how words um, that actually don't have a one to one translation or meaning get interpreted as having that so um she talks about this term xenia like x-e-n-i-a which um is the root of xenophobia which it's Mm -hmm. and if you asked me i like you know before reading this translation without access to a dictionary i would have said that means fear of strangers or like um, a dislike of strangers. Mm-mm. Well, but she sort of says like, she goes in deep to sort of say that like, okay, Xenia really means uh, guest friendship. Like it's a hyphenated yeah. term, which has to do with the welcoming of a stranger who you kind of perceive to possibly be a peer, i.e. someone with the financial resources to travel, who is not enslaved, who you, um, 
are kind of obligated by like, you know, hospitality, baby. Exactly. And it's like, you know, a a slightly more complicated uh, version of the kind of like Christian welcome the stranger vibe. But there's something about the hyphenated guest friendship that I thought was really interesting. And, um, and the fact that it is not just about, um, you know, the category of being stranger or friend or stranger or kin. It's about this category of being a stranger who has every right to expect um, a warm reception. Like that's, there is sort of like, there's, there's this idea of like, um, there's a value embedded in that, right? Like, like the, the term itself implies that it is of value to welcome a stranger on your doorstep. It's altered how I think about the term xenophobia. I think the translation, it's both a very mysterious process for people because people don't often think about it even being necessary, but at the same time, it's very intuitive. Translator Katrina Dodson. We all translate to some extent. And, you know, someone once asked me, well, when did people start translating? How did it all begin? And I said, well, you know, ever since there's been language, You know, we all have a different way of saying things. Literary translation, you have, you're trying to balance the semantic content, so the meaning um, of what's being said with all the other information that language brings with it. So kind of tone of voice, connotation, register, all these things that go beyond the dictionary. So when I translate, I think a lot about voice. I try to get inside the voice of the writer, um, you know, certain attitudes or, you know, the rhythm or how I feel when I'm when I'm reading them. And I try to figure out how I can recreate that in English. Something about translation feels political in a way, I guess, which is to say, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's funny, I thought a lot about, um, you know, over the years, like, who am I reading? Which writer's voices am I consuming? Am I only reading work by straight white men and women? Am I reading, you know, all these questions. And I, I think that really trying to put an active priority on reading work in translation is something that I came to surprisingly late, given my politics about other types of reading. And I'm curious your thoughts about about that and about you know, some of the dismal statistics that we've seen about how much work actually is translated into English that does make it into the American market. Do you have thoughts or feelings about that? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you say all, all of that. And even just the fact that you're putting this on, focus on the show shows that, you know, it's, it's a great vote of confidence in that, that translation is something important to think about. And I think what's happening in the publishing world and translation world is something that's happening in the culture at large and that, you know, we're talking more and more about representation, you know, the importance of hearing from a lot of different voices that have been suppressed systematically in the past. And, you know, a lot more of these small independent publishers and even translators are thinking about, well, 
why have I been translating a whole bunch of white men and you know without thinking about it and let's think about can we translate more by women can we translate more books by people of color because I think a lot about why or how gender or identity matters when you translate and you know obviously you can't always share you know, the gender, the identity of the person you're translating, but I think definitely translating Claire Suspector as a woman, I felt that I was much more attuned to just certain nuances of language or just, you know, there, you, you just feel, you know, different words hit you differently. So, for example, my biggest fight that I had with my editor over a translation you know, a matter of interpretation was over the word escritora. And escritora means writer, but it's gendered female. And he wanted it to be woman writer. And I was like, it's just writer. And he said, right. well, woman writer, that's just the translation. It's black and white. That's just how it is. And I was like, wrong side of history. You know, in this moment, you get the gender eventually. So we, in English, you know, you find out that it's a she. But, you know, my point that I made against it, woman writer just being the, you know, the black and white translation of that term is that when you put a gender tag on a word in English, you're making a point about gender. So, you know, you don't say the female president of Brazil met with the female president of Germany you know, you don't say my cousin, the female doctor, you just say doctor, you say president. But if you want to talk about, say, the first female president of the United States, then you're talking about that in terms of gender. And so I think there were things like that where, you know, being a woman and knowing how much weight there is on a term like woman writer, which is neither feminist nor misogynist, but it's definitely politically charged. When you say woman writer, you're talking about the case of woman writers. You're not just talking about a writer writing in her notebook. And so I said, you know, Lispector, she was a feminist, but she wasn't, she's not making a point about gender here. She's just talking about a woman. Um, so it's things like that where I think, as a translator, you're making these choices in every sentence, every paragraph on every page, and your interpretation matters a lot. Right. I love that. After I made my commitment to read more literature and translation, I'm really lucky because my local independent bookstore, shout out to Skylight Books in Los Angeles, California. Oh, I love them. Uh, hey, Skylight. They have a great <laughs> shelf of liter literature, um, newly in translation or things that they are sort of paying attention to and like, you know, love the curation of an independent bookstore. But I really appreciate that there is a little bit of like a go-to place for me to act on this desire to read more work in translation. And I'm curious if you have advice for people who are not so lucky as to have like this shelf curated by their favorite indie bookstore, um, how they might go about diversifying the sort of language of origin, um, you know, when it comes to the, the books that they're reading. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I would also emphasize that independent bookstores are really great. Um, I'm here in Brooklyn. I'm at the Center for Fiction, which actually is letting me use their podcast room. Thank you. We <laughs> have a they... planned shout out. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I still think getting in the bookstore is the best way, but it's true. Not everybody is near an independent bookstore that has their finger on the pulse. So in the absence of that, I'd say get on the internet. Susan Bernofsky, a great translator, she translates Kafka, Robert Walzer, Yoko Tawada. He's a really interesting Japanese-German writer. Um, Susan Bernofsky has a blog called Translationista, and that has all kinds of information on what's going on in translation worlds. Um, that's a great go-to. The 3% blog, they sponsor a, a translation award, and they also do a lot of highlighting of all the long lists and short lists. They have a podcast where they talk about a lot of books in translation. I think LitHub has actually done a good job of doing these roundups of certain writers that you've never heard of before that you should be reading. They do a great job of kind of sifting through a lot. And and I think also, you know, awards are, they're not, you know, they're, they're obviously a subjective measure of quality. But I think, you know, when you look at the long list and the short list, list of awards, like the National Translation Award, the Penn Translation Prize, and the National Book Award actually just last year reinstituted their translated book award. So they stopped doing that in 1983. Oh, wow. So I think the fact that they brought that back in 2018 is definitely a sign that people are more and more taking translation seriously and, and wanting to put more focus on you know, books from elsewhere. I love that. Katrina, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure. If people want to find your work and works you have translated, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, They can go to my website, katrinakdodson.com. It's funny, to be honest, I've only translated one book-length work, but it was a big one. (laughs) So it's um, 40 years of of short stories written by Clarissa Lispector. And so, you know, that that took me a very long time. So it almost feels like six books in one. That's the big one. And I've done other other short work. Um, so, which is making me think I need to go update my website now. <laughs> Everybody needs to update <laughs> their links. website all the time. It's a, it's a forever to-do list item. Uh, shout out to all the translators out there especially the women translators thank you for all of your tireless work yes and shout out to the act of translation and the interest in it like every month of the year truly where will i see you Anne? i'll see you at the library oh you will you will always see me at the library bye boo boo bye you can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. 
Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CallYRGF. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. 